is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, we talk to the Emergency Services Minister about disaster assistance and we hear from a landholder about how these fires have created additional devastation during an already challenging dry season for cattle farmers. And it just took everything in front of it. Just went up over the back mountain, it just flew up everywhere. And it was not a thing, anyone, you could not have stopped it. It was impossible. As a cattle producer, I really don't know what, what half what we are going to do because we got no feed anywhere. We really we have to buy grain in, we're gonna to have to buy hay in. It's just devastation. More on that story shortly. Uh, you can always send us a text. 0467-922-684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. Well, let's stay with the fires because disaster assistance, as we heard on the program yesterday, is now available in several parts of New South Wales to help communities recover from severe bushfires. Jointly funded by the Australian and New South Wales governments under the disaster recovery funding arrangements, the assistance has been activated for the Inverell, Kyogle and Tenderfield local government areas and the Midwestern local government area. New South Wales Minister for Emergency Services, Jihad Dib, says bushfire impacted, impacted communities, landowners, farmers and primary producers will be supported in their clean-up and recovery, and he wants to help communities get back on their feet and start the difficult road to recovery. Yeah, well, look, Michael, I think one of the things that we've really learned from the past is trying to make sure we get the support out as quickly as possible. You know, communities are doing it really tough, and... You know, I've got to give big credit here to my federal, um, my federal colleague, Murray Watt. You know, we work exceptionally well together, and, and obviously it's a partnership between the, uh, the states and the Commonwealth, but we've been able to try and get the disaster relief and the support as quickly as possible, and that's one of the things that, that we are working on. Um, ideally, we'd love to not have any fires or any disasters, but what we can do is try and deal with it as quickly as possible, and then as soon as we can provide support to do that. And how concerned are you that we're hearing that this fire was probably, the police are saying it was arson? I'm really concerned. And, you know, I mean, disappointment isn't a strong enough word, but, you know, it's already uh, quite quite a difficult, and we haven't even got to summer yet, so the summer's going to be even more difficult than this. And, you know, we know that sometimes fires will start because obviously lightning strikes or some other things that are out of control. But, um, you know, when it's an arson lit and, then that does concern you. But what I need to do is obviously leave that for the, the police and the investigators and fire investigators will work out the details. But, uh, you know, I mean, somebody, if that is the case, anybody who does partake in arson, they're, they're risking not only communities but also people. Well, I mean, of course, we had a death. We, a guy was a guy died, burnt, uh, trying to save his property as a result of this fire. We, we've unfortunately had two deaths in, um, you know, in the past two weeks. We had, we had the death of, um, you know, a volunteer RFS firefighter, somebody who'd been part of the RFS for 50 years, and then we had a gentleman again a couple of days after that who was trying to, I think my understanding is that, you know, he was trying to work on containment lines or some something where he was trying to be protective. So, you know, these 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 are disasters at their worst, and I'm, I'm really concerned about where this summer could take us. How much money has been set aside for this then, for, the, for uh, this announcement? Well, it's not necessarily about how much money is set aside, but rather you open up the categories and then people apply for that. So there's different talk, different types of categories based on, uh, you know, the, the scale of the disaster. So category A and category B, for example, are trying to alleviate personal hardships, you know, as a direct result, um, you know, and, and obviously people will apply for that money. So it isn't, say, for example, uh, here's $10 million and that's the end of it. People who need the money, the money will be there for them. 
Um, you know, different people require different forms of support. Uh, some will require no support. So there's not there's not that ceiling and cap in the sense that you say, well, look, it's first in best dressed. It's it's really designed to ensure that people who need it can have it. That's the category A and category B, which is also about you know essential public assets and and some counter disaster operations that we can have, cleanups and the like, some emergency support for people who have lost items or temporary accommodation for those uh, people who require it. Then of course you get to the further ones, which is you know C and D, and those ones. Those ones really come about a bit later once the full impact of the disaster has been revealed. So these are the initial uh, instant support. And these low interest loans for those businesses affected or farmers affected and those sort of things, that, that opens up the, the category for that too. Yes, yes, it certainly does. So it really helps small businesses and primary producers, non-for-profit. So, you know, concessional interest rates, a small business uh, and non-for-profit as well, and as well as support, you know, community organisations as well. And I've also got to give a bit of a, um, an acknowledgement here to the Department of Primary Industries. They were up there really quickly, particularly with, with farmers in terms of some stock and, uh, you know, feedstock and so forth. And what we've seen really well is one of the, one of the, one of the categories that, one of the things that I'm very, very, um, you know, well, I try to be as strong as I can on is, is the idea of how quickly we can coordinate all government agencies to work together to support the communities. We've got as many people out there as we possibly can to try and do this. We've got 230 appliances you know some of those will be trucks some of those will be planes just trying to get on top of this what about the scale of the damage do we know what sort of stock losses pasture loss do we know how many buildings have been lost uh look it it it's a bit, bit variable the probably the stock loss and the pasture loss will be the hard one and and um in terms of being able to make a prediction at the moment because after the fire obviously the different industry groups will go in and have a proper look but in terms of some properties, we've been pretty fortunate, you know, if I can say that, in that we haven't had uh, many. When I think about Bega, for example, I think we end up having about three. Uh, but we also lost some, um, you know, some, some like sheds and things like that. But I'm looking at the properties per se. Everyone's prayers or whatever it is that they're doing to help is helping because, you know, we've, we've had some situations where fires have got close to townships and, you know, with a combination of really good firefighting and a change of the weather conditions, it's been able to help us out you know, as well as containment lines. But, you, you know, we, we've been pretty fortunate in the sense that at the moment we haven't lost too many properties. Now, we're hearing that uh, potentially hundreds of stock might have been lost, be mainly be cattle, and um, that, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of hectares of um, crop or pasture have been, you know, pretty valuable. So what about uh, things like fodder assistance? Is that out there now? Yes, yeah, so that's the Department of Primary Industries has been out there and they're out there really quickly and there has been a lot of stock lost and I wouldn't be surprised if it's in the hundreds. Um, I've received some reports and some people have sent me some uh, some messages about things that they've lost. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the fires that have burnt, they've burnt over an incredible amount of land and some of that is bushland but a lot of it also is some grassland or some cropland as well. But at this stage, the, the, the primary focus for us is to make sure that we try and fight the fires, try and put out the fires. And um, just finally, it looks like there might be a reprieve on the weather and maybe some rain, which is, as they're saying, you know, that's the only way these fires are going to get put out. We, we really we really hope so. But before that, look, we've got a bit of an easing of conditions today. But and then, yeah, then heating up. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and then heating up. And um, look, particularly around that north um, northern part of New South Wales, you know, and particularly around that Kempsey area, where we're really, really concerned about the size of that of that fire that's been uh, that's been burning, you know the fire the firefighters will do all they can to try and contain the fire, but you know a good bit of rain would would just put it out, and that's that's really what we need. And 
again, I just ask people to, you know, take whatever precautions they can, have a look around their place, follow the advice, stay up to date with the RFS website, and even better still, I think the last time I was in your show, I mentioned that that Hazards Near Me app is absolutely brilliant. And, of course, listen to ABC Radio too. Oh, of course, yeah, the local radio. I mean, of course, the ABC Radio and, 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 and ABC, and, and, you know, I'm saying this to, in, the, in, in the incredible sincerity, the, the ABC, we saw through the last uh, fire disaster that we had in any sort of disaster, it's, a, it's, it's the great local radio station that gives the most up-to-date information. And, and I appreciate what you and your colleagues do. The key is to get the communication out. We're hoping for some rain, but we're warming. We know that we're going into the, where we are in El Nino. So I think this is going to be a bit of a theme for the summer. And, I mean, ironically, we haven't even got into summer yet, and this is what we're dealing with. So, um, you know, I think this is going to be a really difficult summer coming up. New South Wales Minister for Emergency Services, Jahad Dib, there. Now that uh, help, he was talking about the disaster assistance. There's help for eligible people whose homes or belongings have been damaged. There's support for affected local councils to help with the cost of clean-up and restoring damaged essential public assets. Concessional interest rates are available for small businesses, primary producers and non-profit organisations. And there's also freight subsidies available for primary producers. It's coming up to a quarter past 12 on the country hour. Now, um, a Parabar cattle farmer has uh, welcomed the uh, early assistance offered to her fire-impacted community. Barbara Fraser says the fires have created additional devastation during an already challenging dry season for cattle farmers. She spoke to Tina Quinn about what she describes as a huge firewall that seemingly came out of nowhere. And it just took everything in front of it. Just went up over the back mountain. It just flew up everywhere, and it was not a thing. Anyone, it wouldn't have mattered if there was a dozen people there. He said you could not have stopped it. It was impossible. As a cattle producer, I really don't know what what half what we are going to do because we got no feed anywhere. You know, we really need. Um, we really we have to buy grain in. We're going to have to buy hay in. It's just devastation, and that's the bottom line. So you were able to, to get your cattle out, though? They weren't killed? No, our cattle were not killed. We would never, ever be that indolent to leave our cattle. We would always get our cattle out. So you had, enough, and you had enough time to get them out? Well, we were worried about the fire situation with the country and we moved them the week before, except a few head, and they are still there because we can't get in there because we've got no yards. We've got no yards to muster our cattle in to get them out, and so we've taken round bales up, put them along the creek where the cattle are, the cattle and horses that are left there, and as soon as we can get things together, because we're carting 10,000 litres of water a day to water the cattle we've got down the river, and, you know, we just had our wits end. And obviously the, the death in the community last week was also just heartbreaking. Oh, devastating, devastating. A lovely family, a beautiful family that did not need this kind of thing and don't deserve it. By Jennifer Maney, I have always described her as an English rose. She's the most beautiful lady, that his, his mother. She's one of the most beautiful ladies anyone would ever wish to meet. And the areas, you know, there's a lot of cattle producers around Maparabar and, and Warren. a lot of cattle producers, and, of course, it's an industry that's already really suffering at the moment, isn't it? It's gone from its high to its low. It's a lot of people hurting very bad because, like, they've bought cattle in and they've paid a high price and now we're getting nothing for them. 
and you can't get a kill of the meatworks at the moment for weeks ahead. So no matter which way you go, your hands are tied. I just hope, like last time we had these horrific fires up there, Blaze Aid came in and they helped us with some of the fencing and I think Blaze Aid did a marvellous job and I just really hope that Blaze Aid comes back to assist the landholders. I really do. Are you? What are some of the workarounds that you're that you're having to do at the moment? Like, are you using water carters at the moment? No, my brother has a earth moving business, and he has water tanks. We buy the water at the council, pay it on your credit card, and put in uh, how many thousand litres you want. We've done one this morning, and my husband's back on the second one now. How many litres of water? Ten thousand a day, at least. Wow, okay. And in terms of feed, you said that you've got no feed now. What will you do well, for the cattle? Feed, well, we're going to use hay, grain, whatever we can lay our hands on, yeah. What is the future looking like over the next few months for you? Very grim, very grim, very hard. But you have to be a very strong person to live in the rural sector because we have more downs than we have ups. I hope that the government comes forward and can give us some kind of assistance in buying fodder and grain. That's what we need. A Parabar cattle farmer, Barbara Fraser, speaking there to Tina Quinn. Well, Blaze 8 is preparing to start work on properties scorched by the Willy Willy Road bushfire west of Kempsey. Blaze 8 board member Gary Waterson told Melissa Martin that it takes a lot of work and money to get up and running. Uh, we're still in the early stages of trying to set up a camp. Hopefully we can open a camp in the next two to three weeks. Uh, we'll be looking for volunteers. Uh, we just ask people to please check on our Blaze Aid website and all the details will be on the website. It's a fairly involved process. We've first of all got to find a location to actually set up the camp. Uh, and to do that, we've got to make sure we've got various things like showers, toilets, a place where we can cook meals properly and where people of our volunteer people can come along and plug in their power for their caravan or their motorhome or whatever it might be. So this is why it takes a bit of time. And um, in those discussions, what is the need? Do you have any idea exactly sort of how how much fencing is needed yet? Not as yet. I went for a for a half hour drive from from where we met some of the farmers, and it's very horrendous. The actual ground is so burnt it's the actual ground itself has turned to ash it's just going to take a lot longer for the grasses to grow back again so the farmers can utilize their grounds again so it sounds like it really shocked you oh, it did yes 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 i mean i mean i live in kempsey myself uh and i could see all the smoke but till you actually drive through it you don't realize the severity of the damage we're always looking for donations, uh, because as you know, Blaze Aid is a volunteer organisation and we have to rely on donations from the public to keep our organisation operating. And so what sort of donations are you looking for? I mean, obviously Any, some fencing material, but it's not just that, is it? No, no. It's, it, look, at, at this particular stage, it's monetary donations which help run the camp, because a camp can cost us in excess of $5,000 a week to keep it running. Which is a lot of money. Wow! What and what does what does that kind of money go towards? Well, well, we have to feed everybody. Uh, then we also have to 
have to sometimes pay for the power and the water and the sewerage, depending on where we are, and that cost partly incurs some of the insurance costs involved in insuring all our equipment that we have. That's Blaze Aid Board member Gary Waterson talking there to Melissa Martin about uh, the fact they are preparing to set up and help out with the Willy Willy Road fire uh, west of Kempsey. It's 22 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, farmers are accessing more technology and tools as they prepare for changes in climate. That's according to Lou Hogan, who's a manager of the Armidale Node of the Southern Queensland and Northern New South Wales Hub, better known as the Drought Hub. Operating for two years, the hub works with a number of partners across the north of the state. Lou Hogan told Lara Webster they've been trialling a range of technologies and helping out with local farmers. Many people would know after the last drought we had a real explosion of weeds because we had a lot of bare ground. So we've been doing some trials to see how drones might be used for weed control in really inaccessible parts of the tablelands here where rocky and steep and dangerous to get to with other equipment. Um, So we've been trialling drones to not only map and identify weeds but also to come back and spray them. Uh, We've had projects and um, activities with training people in how to to build a confinement feeding lot, particularly for sheep, and how to operate a confinement feeding area and what the benefits of that might be. We at, at University of New England, we've developed a program called Ag360, which is a really integrated decision support tool for livestock producers that provides a really comprehensive weather forecast and then combines that with information about the farm to predict how much pasture they're going to have going forward. So it's a really important tool for being prepared for the next dry time and being forewarned so that you can be on the front foot instead of reacting. How are they being received by some of the local farmers? Well, most of the things I've just talked about have actually already well tested, so it's really about um, giving people the confidence to go and actually apply them on their own farm or in their own business. So, yeah, we're not so much in the the testing and research phase, but more in, okay, we know this works, it has application for many farmers, so let's give you some support to take that up. How many are you seeing come forward, especially as you and I stand here on what is a very dry, windy smoke hazy kind of day I mean how much interest are you starting to see? Yeah so the Armadale node we've hosted in excess of um, 50 events in the last two years and we've um, contact been in contact with you know in excess of 1500 producers so we've got a lot of people coming to events that we host or our partners host um, and they're showing a lot of interest in applying new knowledge and tools so that they can be better prepared for what's coming at us, which we know is going to be more variability, more extremes, and, and manage you know a lot of stress for people, and they need people need to be able to manage that stress and worry better. Have you seen more of an uptake or more of a willingness to, to come forward and, and talk to you and groups like Glenrack since the last drought to when you compare to now as we head into a, a new period of drought? Yes, I do think so, because I think people are realising now that um, our lived experience of, of variability in the climate doesn't apply anymore. We've got, we've got a new a new reality that we have to deal with and we have to apply new knowledge and new abilities to manage these businesses going forward because, you know, as I said, the, the experiences we got from our parents or the experiences we've had in the time that we've been farming may not be enough for the future. 
How do you try and make sure the knowledge and, and you know, the technology that you're applying at the moment keeps up with the changes we're seeing? Yeah, so we're constantly taking feedback from producers um, and most of the people who work in the team with me are producers in their own right as well, so they've got their own experiences and so we're constantly refining our messages and our tools so that they're relevant and, you know, the the best they can be to deal with the future. Manager of the Armadale Node of the Drought Hub, Lou Hogan, speaking there to Lara Webster. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 26 minutes past 12. Well, the crash in livestock prices has seen farmers struggle to pay down debts. According to a financial counsellor, farmers are being forced to sell off machinery and land to appease their banks. Peter Muirhead is rural financial counsellor based on the South Coast. He says the sharp downturn in commodity prices is the biggest pressure on farmers right now. Having a lot of discussions with farmers more about the commodity prices and what they're selling their sheep and their cattle for um, and how they make their budgets work, that's probably having a bigger impact than the actual physical drought. Um, and it's certainly making it harder to make those decisions about, well, do we feed it or do we, do we sell our stock? Um, and I'm also finding that the banks, uh, increasingly people are having more trouble dealing with the bank um, and especially the smaller end, you know, people that owe less than a million dollars. It seems to actually be more difficult to try to get somebody to talk to to try to manage that process through the drought, through these low commodity prices to come out the other end. Uh, that might be surprising to people that many people will be focused just on dry times and, and that side of things, but... Um, the fact that the commodity prices have crashed so quickly and then high interest rates, are, are they two influences all having a, an impact on, on farmers? Yeah, look, it's all having an impact and certainly high interest rates, there's an impact, the drought's an impact. But I, you know, I really see that the commodity price, that's the real thing. If we'd have been still getting, and I'm not saying getting $200 for sheep, but if we're getting $100, $150 for our sheep, Okay, the interest rates are now five, six, seven percent. I think most people could manage that process, but when you're now sending your stuff over to Wagga and you're getting twenty or thirty bucks, it just doesn't work. What are the processes you're working through with farmers who are having trouble on the financial side managing that commodity downturn? Yeah, so unfortunately, some people are having, as I said, issues with their banks. So we're looking at what potential surplus assets, you know, whether it's a bit of equipment we can sell. I've had a couple of farmers who have little adjoining blocks to their main farm that have had to sell those to try to reduce debt and then try to get a bit of a time frame from the bank so that, you know, hopefully in the next 18 months, two years, we can work through this process and we get back to normal sort of prices and stuff. Um, So if we can do that, then that's, I suppose, part of our role is helping the farmer talk to the bank and getting some sort of deal done there so that we've got some some sort of forward-looking process at the moment. Uh, in past droughts, you've helped a lot of farmers through with applications for assistance. Um, are you doing much of that work at the moment? Yeah, there's well, we've been drought declared here on the coast. Um, at the moment, there isn't a transport subsidy available, um, so that is making it a bit difficult. But there, I've had an increased uh, inquiries regarding farm household allowance, so that's a Centrelink payment uh, made fortnightly to farmers depending on whether it's a couple or not you know it's five to six hundred bucks a fortnight so that certainly does help put food on the table um so i'm certainly seeing significant increase in inquiries for people to do that 
the, the process is a bit onerous. Um, it's got to be done online. Um, I helped somebody the other day, and it literally took me two hours with them online to try to get the application in. But, you know, I'm happy to come out on farm to help you through that process, but it does take some time. Peter Muirhead is a rural financial councillor based on the South Coast. He was speaking there to Josh Becker, talking about commodity prices being the, the big issue for many at the moment. It's uh, 29 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And on the fires, getting a few texts. Uh, people are texting in uh, saying, someone's texted in saying, or James texted in saying, don't be surprised the fact that arsonists are out there at work in this country. There are people out there who just don't care who they hurt. Also, um, uh, someone's saying uh, we need, uh, in terms of these fires, uh, really feeling for the landholders who are suffering through this, but we also need to think about our native bushland that's been destroyed throughout this whole saga as well, and we rarely hear anything about that, according to, to Gordon. And um, Julie's uh, telling us about uh, something that happened at her place. She said they the entrance to their small farm near Warren caught fire, started to spread through the paddock. They managed to stop it, though, thankfully, but she thought it was someone who dropped a cigarette butt in their wooden post. So, uh, yeah, Julie, not happy about that. Uh, and it's uh, we'll have uh, more details uh, on uh, the fires a little bit later on in the program. And we'll look at the all-important weather forecast to see, uh, hopefully, a little bit of rain on the way a little bit later on in the week. It's half past 12. Hello, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. As heavy fighting continues between Israel and Hamas, the bloodshed in the Middle East is now said to have claimed around 6,500 lives. We'll have the latest from the region. Goodbye range anxiety. Queensland to amp up efforts to electrify its road network by installing thousands of EV recharging stations. And we bid farewell to Bobby, the world's oldest dog, who has died at the ripe old age of 31. That's coming up on The World Today, but on uh, the New South Wales Country Hour, it's uh, time to get some news headlines now before we head off to the weather. And hopefully, as I said, some uh, rain on the way to, to douse those fires. But uh, Adam Storey's with us now. What's happening in the news? Yeah, well, it looks like we'll be keeping an eye on some fires again uh, today. And, of course, uh, the news uh, came through earlier that uh, the 3,000-hectare uh, bushfire near Kempsey on the mid-north coast was actually deliberately mm. lit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, no, not in, so great. No. And the police were saying they want to hear from anyone who saw a white utility driving around the area at the yeah, time. So okay. that, that's um, the latest that police, they, they had a media conference earlier this morning about that. So, yeah, if you did see anyone that looked suspicious, uh, let the let the police know. Yeah, in a white van. In a, yeah, in yeah. a white utility. White yep. utility. Yep. Yeah, yep. okay. Not that they, I mean, they'd be... I was, a few white few, utilities just around. Don't go out there willy nilly, <laughs> and <laughs> there'd be fewer of them around. I'm, yeah. telling, I'm telling you, presumption yeah. of innocence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they might have seen something. So you yeah, know, you never the, know. Let the police you never know. know. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. We'll head over overseas first, and uh, there was uh, two hostages released overnight by uh, Hamas in Gaza. Uh, Israel confirmed that the two women aged 85 and 79 uh, were released into the care of the Red Cross in Egypt. They were captured on October the 7th on that day that uh, 220 others uh, were captured as well. Uh, now, they, Hamas put out a statement on social media saying they uh, freed the women for humanitarian reasons. 
So maybe free the others for humanitarian reasons. Perhaps too, yeah. 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 Uh, meanwhile, the World Food Programme says more than 40 trucks are stationed at the border between Egypt and the Gaza Strip waiting to distribute humanitarian aid. Uh, the latest convoy that went through Rafa crossing uh, included 20 trucks of food, water and medical supplies, but aid groups have echoed calls from the United Nations for hundreds of more shipments. Uh, the Prime Minister is continuing his... Uh, trip to uh, the United States in Washington, D.C. He's due to meet with the President Joe Biden uh, and Republican leaders. Uh, there are concerns that uh, the bills that uh, will enable Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines have stalled, not just because the uh, Congress is not functioning at the moment because they don't have a speaker, but there are Republicans who may not uh, vote in favour of the bill, so there'll be a bit of uh, lobbying going on there. Uh, there's been a, quite a significant uh, court ruling today. Um, a judge has approved a blood transfusion for a Jehovah's Witness toddler against her parents' wishes. Uh, New South Wales regional health officials were granted the order. Uh, they have uh, the the child needs two scheduled surgeries, and uh, the specialists say it may be clinically necessary to treat her uh, with blood to manage the risk of damage to her health including possible death. Now, that was against her parents' wishes, but the doctors uh, have now got this order and they can go ahead uh, and do it. I don't think that's the first time it's been challenged. Um, I, don't, I, yeah. I don't think I've heard of that bit actually, yeah, actually I mean, being I've heard successful of, in I've court. heard of cases, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and this is related to what they call whole blood, pro- whole blood, blood products. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so plasma was okay. Plasma was okay, but this is actual... Whole blood products, which yeah. is what they need in this case. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, and there's a meeting, or has been a meeting, of uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Lee workers on the Central Coast almost a week after the uh, company was placed into voluntary administration. Uh, the United Workers Union uh, says the company failed to consult its 200 staff before last Wednesday's announcement, uh, but the union says they are now talking, so the future of those workers remains up in the air as mm. to whether this company can be sold. Mm. Uh, okay. So cheesecakes all round. I mean, yeah. I mean, who'd have thought? <laughs> Sarah Lee, 50 years. The people who take care of your sweet tooth. <laughs> Have to find something else. Yeah, uh, uh, see, you know, I think it's all these home chefs. You see, is that, that what it is? That's exploded. Oh, everyone's everyone's okay. cooking their own yeah, cakes. You know, yeah, it's, see, it's, like it's, it's, it's wrong, wrong, wrong. It's wrong so to buy levels. these days, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. You have to go out and cook. Oh, You're gonna make it. Me. You're gonna make it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, not a fan of that idea. So you're not a so you're not a fan of these these. These TV shows, then? Oh, look, you know, <laughs> reality I sort of TV. sit there drooling over some of the dishes, <laughs> but, you know, I just think, you know, everyone's a chef these days, aren't they? That's right. Yes, yeah. yes, I think I think you're right. right. And you, yeah, that's, that's, quite, that's a very good point. Yeah. Mm. Everyone still, thinks they are anyway. I still can't boil an egg. I, can, <laughs> I was just going to say. I don't make any claims. I was just going to say, have you learned <laughs> anything? Culinary expertise. <laughs> yeah. All right, Adam, thanks for that. Adam will be back at 1 o'clock. It's uh, coming up to 24 minutes to 1 here on the New South Wales country. And now uh, uh, let's find out what's happening with the weather. Jordan Natara is at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So they're talking in the, on the fire grounds. They're worried about um, the conditions today getting a little bit worse later on today. So what, what are we looking at there? Maybe a little bit warmer, maybe some winds? 
Yeah, so broad, warm temperatures across the state. Uh, we are looking at um, relatively high fire dangers, but not into the fire weather warning territory for today. Though that doesn't obviously uh, mean that we aren't going to be seeing active fires in the landscape. We already have um, currently watching active fires in parts of the Hunter. We are going to be watching more of those coastal sea breezes that are going to be driving those fires to become potentially a little bit more active as we head towards the afternoon. And into the far northeast, we are looking at the potential for some thunderstorm activity, which is going to bring little rainfall, so may again see some more fires that start to be produced from that. As we head into tomorrow, we'll be seeing a cold front pushing across the state, so cooling in parts of the south and southeast. Um, but those northeastern areas are going to be seeing more elevated fire dangers with fire weather warnings likely to be issued as we head towards the afternoon. And that's going to capture areas again through the New England northwest, heading into the northern rivers and into parts of the mid-north coast potentially, as well as the Hunter. And on top of that, we are looking at the potential as that front moves through. Potentially, we could see some severe thunderstorm activity in parts of the northeastern of the state as well, with risks of damaging winds and large hail. As we head towards Thursday and Friday, we that cold front is going to start to develop into more of a coastal trough and possibly even a low starting to form near parts of the northeastern coastline. High uncertainty at this stage still about how this system is going to evolve, though it looks as though that we have got the chance we could see widespread rain into parts of the east as we head through Thursday into Friday, with a focus obviously into the parts of the northeastern parts of the state where we could see 5 to 15 mils falling into areas where we've got obviously those large fires already on the landscape. At this stage, as I say, the uncertainty is still high, so it could be even potentially more than that, depending on how the system evolves. Um, but it is going to be one that's going to be leading out as we head towards the weekend with those showers starting to ease off and unfortunately a, a return to warming conditions as we head towards Monday next week. So do we, we still don't know what sort of, how many millimetres we might expect in terms of rainfall, for the, particularly yeah. over the fire grounds? We're looking at most likely widespread falls of around that 5 to 10 mils um, into those areas. That is obviously great news for um, obviously bringing some of those fires under control, though the chances are that we could see either potentially some high falls over some of the elevated terrains near the coast, but if this uh, potential system moves quickly further offshore, it could be less than that as well. So. It's definitely uh, one that we're going to have to continue to track, but at this stage, it's looking good news at this stage that we will get some, but it's like basically a case of how much at this stage. Mm, I think, yeah, 5 to 10, the people like a bit more than that. Maybe 20 millimetres might be pretty handy to get the fires out, but uh, that might be wishful thinking, you reckon? I think it's definitely possible. It's all down to how the system evolves as we head towards Friday, and if it does obviously linger longer or potentially even develop into a more of a coastal low, that could see much more rainfall than that sort of 5 to 15 mils, let's say. Um, so we could get upwards of 40 maybe into some areas, but again, it's highly uncertain at this stage, and we're going to have to just readdress it as we get a little bit closer. Okay, well, let's uh, hope the Australian vernacular of linger longer works out in this case. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Jordan Nataro at the Bureau there uh, with the uh, good news. At least there seems to be some rain in, over those uh, fire grounds uh, coming up over the next few days. It's coming up to 20 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Now, this is quite alarming. Authorities in the New South Wales uh, region have that have been looking at varroa mite have detected an infestation of 9,000 varroa mites on a single feral bee swarm on the central coast. The discovery was part of an ongoing surveillance of feral bees to monitor the spread of the deadly bee parasite across the state. The Department of Primary Industries has 244 swarm traps located in the Hunter 
and Central Coast and is looking to deploy more, including around the Kempsey Management Zone as well. The DPI's Deputy Incident Controller, Dr Shannon Mulholland, told Kim Honan that the testing of feral bees is progressing pretty well. It's something that we've been doing for a while under the response because it's really important for us to understand uh, mite presence and also mite load in managed hives but also in wild honeybees. Uh, There's been a few opportunities where we've been able to sample colonies directly from where they're living um, for the ones that are accessible. They're often quite difficult to access, so that's been um, one option that we've explored. We've also been able to catch uh, a few swarms and we've also been able to deploy swarm catch boxes to attract swarms as they're moving through the environment and that makes it a lot easier for us to sample them from there. And so how many swarms have you actually caught? And in those swarms, what sort of infestations of varroa mite are you finding? Yeah, we've been able to catch swarms and sample colonies directly uh, for the wild honeybee population. And we have had a few detections of varroa in, in some of those colonies. They're predominantly within the Hunter and Central Coast where we have a large number of infested premises and we know that the mite loads are quite high on that coastal fringe. Um, the mite load does vary depending on um, the colony that we've sampled on the day. Uh, in some instances, there's only been a handful of mites. Um, in a few, there's been quite a few hundred mites, so the, that's a quite a high mite load. And then there's been a few that have had a, a couple of thousand mites. I think the highest one we've had was around 9,000 mites, um, which is a, a pretty substantial mite load. Uh, and that certainly might be a factor as to why that colony was swarming in the first place. And what area was that found in Newcastle or the Central Coast? That one was found on the Central Coast, but we, yeah, we have found um, positive detections in wild bees in, in the Hunter and on the Central Coast. So 9,000 mites, how, how many bees would have been in that swarm? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure if they counted the full number of bees. I think they were a little bit preoccupied with counting the mites, um, but it would have just been a, an average swarm population of bees. Uh, so, yeah, a few thousand bees in that swarm. And so what happened to that swarm? Um, so those swarms, uh, as they're found positive, they are euthanized, uh, and that's just a, a mite control option that we can apply in the field. Um, but the, the sampling process uh, was using the alcohol wash technique, which is a destructive sampling process anyway. Okay, so you're using swarm traps and monitoring stations to, for the testing and catching? Uh, well, the monitoring stations were a key feature of the Wild Honeybee Baiting Program, but as that program has now uh, ceased with our transition to management, those stations are in the process of being demobilised. So what we will use moving forward are the swarm catch boxes uh, and also just continue to survey colonies that are in the area. So if we have public reports of wild bees and we can access them from the ground, um, we will continue to sample as many of them as we can. Okay, so the 1,200 or so monitoring stations aren't operating more or are winding back? Yeah, they're winding down at the moment. They're, they're in the process of being packed up as part of that wind down of the, the baiting program. The, the wild honeybee team that we have within the response is still going to be actively working with the response moving forward. Um, there's some important research components that they're finishing off, but they're also going to be really important in monitoring our wild bee population uh, over that transition phase. Um, it's really important data for us to consider in terms of understanding the level of infestation and also mite presence. Uh, and it'll be an interesting thing to track to see um, what that mite population does to those wild bee populations. Uh, we'll, we'll do the introductory component of that over the next 12 months, but I'm hoping that that will be an ongoing feature for industry to keep surveying as part of that transition and management of the role moving forward. And so is the, the DPI concerned at all that um, the feral bees will be spreading varroa mites quicker now? Uh, I don't know if we could say that they're spreading it quicker, but they are certainly a vector. So um, they're, they're certainly capable of being infested by varroa and 
they will host varroa in the environment. So if we have an area that has a large mite presence in wild bees, then managed hives in that area are certainly going to be at risk of further infestation or reinfestation, even if they are treating it within their hives. Uh, and it's certainly something that I'm concerned about with any beekeepers who might be electing to catch swarms that are in those management zones, so particularly around Kempsey, the Hunter and the Central Coast. Uh, the risk of having mites in those wild bee populations is high in those areas. We know that we have a high number of infested premises in those locations. So it, it's quite a risky move to be catching swarms in those areas where there could be high mite levels present. New South Wales DPI's Deputy Incident Controller for the Varroa Mite Response, Dr Shannon Mulholland, speaking there to Kim Honan. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. Winemakers in the state's largest produce, producing region, the Riverina, are cautiously optimistic about the news China is reviewing import duties. The review is expected to take t- take about five months, and as a result, Australia will suspend its action in the World Trade Organization. The tariffs of uh, around about 200% were first imposed in 2020 and seen the value of Australian wine exports to China fall from more than a billion dollars to just $10 million. President of the Riverina Winemakers Association, Andrew Calabria, says that the resumption of trade would be welcome, but he warns it's no silver bullet. The whole market was really important to the entire Australian wine industry, and that flowed right through into the Riverina region. Uh, Australian wine exports to China were just under $1.2 billion, and by far our, our largest market, in which grew over a 10-year period. Um, but the biggest problem, I think, was that even if you didn't sell to China, by the introduction of the tariffs, put, just put a strain on the entire industry, and, and indirectly it affected everyone, regardless if you sold into that market or not. So it's, um, it's a very important market. There was a, a strong thirst for knowledge on our products. However, you know, things have changed during that COVID period. Uh, the economy um, isn't doing as well in China either, and, and not as many people have that cash either. So we're going to welcome any change to the tariffs by, by all means, but also very cautious that um, consumption is probably lower for wine and it's not necessarily going to be that $1.2 billion worth of value um, that we had before. But it's still a very important market for the future of our industry. And uh, I suppose some of our competitors might have capitalised while we've been locked out as well. Yeah, look, a lot of factors have sort of changed that too. So Australia had a, a market uh, where the, the market share was um, with Australia, but now we're seeing competitors like South Africa and South America and French and Italian wines come through as well. So the competitors have really come in and taken up a lot of that market share. And also, as I understand it, at this stage, it's a commitment to review those tariffs with potential change in, in five or so months. So nothing necessarily guaranteed at this stage either. No, it's not guaranteed, but, but this is by far the most positive news that we've received in that three years from, from China. Um, like I said, this is just one of the many challenges that the entire wine industry um, is facing right now. Also, I think we need to probably, yeah, we're stepping with caution just because, you know, it was an important market. 
it was taken away quite abruptly and it definitely um, it definitely hurt. So I think it's probably just guys to manage their risk as in um, wineries and growers on, on how much they do want to re-entry into the market. It might not be a full 100%, but they might sort of go a little bit slowly because, um, you know, there's still, there's still a risk and we're living in a very volatile world where things do change quite rapidly. So um, I think we, we want that market share to evolve over time, but we're also got to be, you know, highlight the risk that um, we need to spread our, our export markets to other uh, regions and territories. President of the Riverina Winemakers Association, Andrew Calabria there. Well, four years is a long time in the wine game. Nick Seger uh, runs Nashdale Wines. He's also president of the Orange Vignerons Association. He welcomes the tariff review and says the Orange region is well-placed to resume trade with Chinese wine consumers. But he says in the intervening years, Chinese tastes in wine may have actually changed. The China market for the whole Australian wine before the tariffs were applied was somewhere in the region of $1.2 billion. And so um, having that as an option back on the table is is um, really quite positive. I think a lot of producers have also pivoted in terms of their options of where they look to, 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 to be selling. And so um, overseas markets such as the UK, uh, North America, Scandinavia, places like that have become options that people have been looking at as well. But potentially having China back there as well is is is, is really really kind of an exciting point in time. And Orange is obviously uh, you know up at the you know you you're targeting sort of the premium market, which is where we're uh, hoping to 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 get that uh, into the higher level premium markets in China. So it's a fill up for that too. You think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the producers that I've been speaking to who used to um, export to China had said that the the wine that they were they were selling over there was was their sort of premium uh, wines where they're able to sell at good prices as well. And I think what Orange presents in terms of a wine region is such a, a really beautiful range of diversity of varietal styles that the the different sites at different altitudes give options of amazing more full-bodied reds you know the cabernets and the the shiraz style uh, red wines but also we are able to offer them really nice elegant styles of riesling chardonnay and pinot noir as well so from a, a production point of view to offer a really broad range of wines to the chinese market it's it's kind of exciting time because it was different to where we sort of are selling into supermarkets in the uk you know and we're sort of pitching them at the at the lower level market this could be you know for a premium region like orange this could be a a a, a big game changer because the chinese don't seem to balk at paying high prices yeah i mean it's with the review going on at the moment obviously if if there's a positive outcome to that there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be then done in terms of you know starting up those business relationships again and and understanding if the market's changed over there, would the consumer appetite for certain styles of wine may have changed. So you think that the tastes might have changed? They might be looking for more sparkling wine or more whites rather than the reds? Or they still be wanting the reds? Oh, look, I think that, that those there's certainly definitely a, a demand for that style of more full-bodied reds. But from what I understand in some of the conversations we've had, that the palette and the, chain, uh, the style of some of the younger consumers are looking for is a little bit different. The cooler climate style of Chardonnays, Rieslings, Pinot Noir are, are definitely options there. And obviously we, we produce a beautiful range of those styles of wine as well as the, the more full-bodied reds. 
Nick Seger is uh, Nashdale Wines. He's also president of Orange Vineyards Association. Well, the Hunter Valley Wineries are also welcoming the news of the Tariff Review. Stuart Horden is a president of Hunter Valley Wine and Tourism Association, and he told Lara Webster that he's cautiously optimistic. Look, we, we welcome the news, as both as Brokerwood and, and the wider industry. Um, there's still a little bit of water to go under the bridge, I guess, in terms of there's five months until the, the details are released, but we're very happy to see things moving in the right direction. It would be great to see this this tariff removed. Um, losing our largest export market was a was a pretty big blow for the industry. Um, so anything anything pointing towards that being removed is, is reason for optimism. How much work will have to go into to rebuilding those relationships and the market shares as well? Where do you start? Look, it's it's just going to be wearing out shoe leather. It's going to mean um, producers are going to need to get over to China and and rebuild and and restart those relationships. Um, it, it's it's not going to be something that's going to be able to be accomplished overnight or from afar. We're going to need to um, get over there to do the do the heavy lifting of of restarting things. One of the challenges for the Hunter Valley, when we're not enormous exporters by any means, but it has meant that existing markets have become much more competitive. So wine that was historically destined for the Chinese market has had to find an alternative home. Stuart Horden is president of the Hunter Valley Wine and Tourism Association. He's also the senior winemaker at Broken Wood Wines at Pocolbin. It's uh, time for markets. First up, Wodonga cattle. Good afternoon. Just over a 1,000 cattle were offered at Wodonga, combined in the total 403 cows. Quality was fair to very good, and all the usual buyers were at the rail, and all were keen to secure well-finished trade and export stock. The market found some legs this week, with prices for trade steers and heifers 20 to 30 cents dearer. However, veal continued to struggle, selling at 178 to 265. Trade steers, 205 to 240. Trade heifers, 190 to 270. Overfat heifers, 155 to 178. Feeder steers, 198 to 214, up 20. Heavy grown steers jumped 20 cents, 205 to 244. Bullocks gained 15, 226 to 246. Heavy heifers with shape were up 20 cents and more in places, $2 to 246. Heavy cows surged 20 cents, 187 to 206. And the middle run, 154 to 171. And the best bull topped at 210. And we are ducks for MLA. Forbes sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped this sale with agency adding 37,800 head. Lambs showed the increase with 30,450 and quality was very mixed with some good runs of finished lambs available along with a larger percentage of plainer and secondary types. The usual buyers are present competing in a fairly steady market. There was just under 10,000 new season lambs penned and prices held fairly steady though a little bit dearer on some of the fresher finished types trade weight 20 to 24 kilos sold from 102 to 126 dollars a head while the heavy lambs ranged in price from 120 to 133 old lambs followed a similar trend with the better finished types attracting stronger competition and prices remaining fairly steady trade weight 20 to 24 kilos sold 
from 73 to 113, 24 to 26 kilo receiving from 114 to 120. Heavyweight lambs, 26 kilos and over, sold from 118 to top of $182 a head. The balance of the lambs and 7,350 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Carcor cattle. Numbers lifted by 400 for a yarding of 1,945. It was a fair to good quality yarding with some good young cattle to suit the trade buyers, along with fair numbers to suit the feeders. There were also some good runs of well-finished ground steers and heifers, and there were 290 mixed-quality cows yarded. Young cattle of the trade were up to 20 cents dearer, with prime vealers selling to 226. Prime yearlings sold from 150 to 227. Feeder steers and heifers were 6 to 12 cents dearer. The feeder steers sold from 160 to 237, while the feeder heifers sold from 135 to 177. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 50 cents dearer, with the young steers selling to 249 and the young heifers 201. Ground steers and heifers were 12 to 20 cents dearer, with the prime ground steers selling from 170 to 225. Prime ground heifers sold from 155 to 202. Cows were firm with the two and three scores selling from 40 to 152. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 145 to 180 to average 167. Heavy bulls sold to 175. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. Gunnada Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted by 500 for a penny of 2,360 head. Large supplies of young cattle and cows brought out by feed concerns. Quality was very mixed, as was condition. Some very well-bred feed is a standout. A reduced buying attendance, varying trends through the young cattle with light and medium-weight yielding steers selling to dearer trends of 4 to 6 cents, lightweights 92 to 2.41 cents a kilo, medium weight feed is 170 to 2.30, heavy feed is 8 to 12 cents cheaper, 176 to 2.26 cents, process is paying to 2.29, cheaper trends the lightest of the yearling heifers, 1 100 to 160. Medium weights affirmed a slightly cheaper trend. The medium and heavy weights, 138 to 200 cents. Limited processor competition on ground steers, 170 to 195. The best of the ground heifers to process reaching 178. Plain condition cows, these slightly 94 to 153. Heavy three and four scores firm to slightly dearer, 142 to 168 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Canada. Inverell cattle. Good afternoon. Inverell numbers increased by 196 to 1,274. Good quality cattle. Young cattle quality improved in breed and condition, resulting in dearer trends for those categories. Most regular buyers attended and operated. Restocker steer wean is up 5 cents a kilo, 140 to 204. Feeder categories considerably dearer, 185 to 226. The heifer portion to restock, 19 cents. Dearer, 142 to 160. Process of veal is 12 cents better, 140 to 170. Light yearling steers to restock and feed to deer trends to 246 and 248 cents a kilo respectively. Medium steers to feed up to 25 cents a kilo better, 168 to 224. Heifers to restock and feed sold to deer trends and heavy, heavy heifer feeders up 28 cents a kilo, 175 to 190. Stephen Adams from LA at Inverell. Scone cattle. As firefighting helicopters flew overhead, Scone agents saw a decline of 279 head to yard 835 mixed quality cattle, not to the standard of last week, with plain condition but well-bred weaners to the fore, a few exceptional B-muscle limousin supplementary fed yearlings suitable for the local butcher trade, and around 60 cows offered. Most of the regular buyers at the rail, along with the return of a northern New South Wales processor and added local restocker interest, buoyed by a promising rain forecast for later in the week. Light restocker steer weaners saw a considerable gains of up to 80 cents 
cents. Breed a big factor, 130 to 2.22. Medium weight saw similar gains, 202 to 2.18. Light restocker heifer weaners dearer by 20, 84 to 1.26, with medium weights making to 1.44. Light yielding sears to feed and restock saw improved results of 20 to 40 cents, 160 to 1.76. Over 3.30 kilos, similar gains making to 1.94. And prime bee muscle to the local trade made to 2.80. Light yielding heifers 80 to 1.88 to be 22 cents dearer, and over 3.30 kilos to lot feeders to 1.66. Angus Barlow for MLA at Scone. And it's one o'clock.